James chapter 4, starting in verse 13. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills it, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which keep kept which, were, which you kept back by fraud, crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, for how it has the power to transform. We pray, Father, that as we read your word this morning, we would be both challenged and encouraged by it, Father. I pray that I would be a vessel for your truth this morning. And I pray that we would leave transformed by your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's my privilege to be uh, sharing from the word this morning. It's been a minute. I've been doing a lot of worship, but thank you, Blake, for trusting me with this. Um, I love the word of God, and uh, there's a lot in here. As we've seen already, James is a very challenging book. He doesn't mince words, um, and there's a lot to dig into uh, this morning. When we think of that beginning of the passage that no one knows what tomorrow will bring, I think uh, that truth rang truer to us in 2020 than any other time of our lives. From wedding plans changing to summer camps being canceled to worship nights being put on hold, the year 2020 was the biggest reminder that I do not know what tomorrow will bring. And I'm sure all of us had plans last year that changed um, because of the pandemic. We realized we have no clue what tomorrow will bring. We can make our plan for the next several months, for the next several years, but at the end of the day, God is the only one who knows what's going to happen. I think as our plans changed, it forced all of us to ask the questions, where do we put our confidence in? Is it in our own plans, or is it in the will of God? So today's passage sheds some light on this question. 
13 through 15. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. In this letter, James has addressed a number of issues that the believers were facing. And in this passage, he addresses their lack of reverence for God's will. He warns them not to speak in a way that expresses reliance on their own success with no thought of God's providence. It may be easy to read this and overlook it because he's referring to businessmen making a trade here and making a trade. They're relying on their own success. And we may think that we don't have that kind of worldly success to distract us from trusting God. We don't have that kind of worldly success to boast in, but we must not assume that we are immune to this attitude. I have found often that we've traded a worldly version of success for a Christian version of success. We assume that because our plans are for God, that they are of God. We may set out to do something with good intentions, serving Him, but our confidence is in those plans. And these may be plans that though they are good things and though we are in our head doing them for the Lord that we may not have prayed through. This is an easy trap for people in ministry to fall into. That today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and do this ministry or that ministry. Because it's ministry, God will bless it. But just because it is for God does not mean that it is of God. He has a plan, and we ought to be seeking Him to know this plan. We think it's somehow less sinful to rely on our own accomplishments so long as these are spiritual accomplishments. And I think the times that I've fallen into this trap, the reason that we can fall so easily into this trap is because we have a narrow definition of what calling is. Many Christians I've met think, when they think of calling, they think of a career path. What is my job going to be? They think of a very specific task, a very specific plan. Is this a biblical view of calling? For this morning's purposes, when I speak of calling, I'm speaking of the God-given purpose for your life. What is the God-given purpose for your life? But even then, many are asking for God to give them a five-year, a ten-year plan, a career path. We want the details. I know for me, oftentimes, I feel uncomfortable not knowing what's going to happen. Our identity becomes so locked in with this idea of calling. God is far less concerned with what you can do for him than he is with who you are. We see in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is far more concerned with the heart motive than the action 
itself. There are many religious people who thought that they had done their good deeds for God. Oh, I've never murdered. I've never committed adultery. And Jesus challenges them. But you've hated before. It's the same heart motive as murder. You've looked at someone with lust before. It's the same heart motive as adultery. He challenges this task-driven mentality of following God with a heart motive. A false perspective of calling is dangerous because it can lead people to inaction. What are you doing to serve the Lord? I don't know what my calling is yet. So you'll read your Bible, you'll come to church, you'll pray, you'll, you'll do those things. But beyond that, what are you doing to serve the Lord? I, I'm still trying to figure out my calling. I'm in a season of waiting. And we see how this perspective, this definition of calling becomes very dangerous because it can lead to laziness. Your calling didn't get lost in the mail. If you're waiting on your calling this morning, wait no longer. I can tell you exactly what your God-given purpose is. That's not something that we have to wait on. It's given to us in Scripture. Your calling is to glorify God, to have relationship with Him, and to invite others into relationship with Him. Your calling is to glorify God, have relationship with God, and invite others into relationship with God. If you are a believer, a child of God, this is your God-given purpose. And the reason it's so important to catch this truth is because these things are doable in any context. It doesn't matter what your career is or where you live or if your plans change. This is your purpose, and you can fulfill it in any context. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't care about where you live or what your career is or the details of your life. They do matter to God. But we should be far more concerned that we're obedient in these areas than we are about where or how we do them. Because those things can change. These don't. There's no excuse for waiting on these things. Your identity is not in your skill set, your career, or any of those things. Your identity is that you are a child of God. And this is your God-given purpose. Before I am a worship leader, or Blake as a pastor, or Keenan as an artist, we're children of God. That comes first, always. We're called to glorify Him, have relationship with Him, and invite others into relationship with Him. Another reason a false perception of calling can be so dangerous is because it can lead to what I call seasonal identity crisis. What I mean by this is, in late high school and early college, my false definition of calling, this career that I would get clearly from God, He would speak it to me, this is my plan for your life. It led me into a frantic journey of, of trying to force that plan 
into being. I wanted to know what it was because that was my identity. Unfortunately, that was my identity because of a lot of what I heard about calling, a lot of how it was defined for me. And I spent so much of my time placing my identity in what I could do for God rather than who I was in Christ. In my mind, I had to know what I was going to do, where I was going to go to school, what kind of job I was going to do. All of these details. And I'm so glad that his plans were different than mine. But when my plans that I had set out started to change, I felt lost because my identity was placed in those things. And so I'd latch on to calling after calling, trying to find something that I could place my identity in, that I could anchor my identity in. Now, I think it's a, a good and a healthy thing for college students to be open-minded and explore different career paths, but it's never healthy, no matter what stage of life you're in, when you put your identity in those things. Because anytime something changes, you're lost. I see how a lot of my friends fell into this same trap because they thought that calling was all about what they did. I was so afraid not to have a purpose in life. Without my calling, who am I? And all the while, God was patiently waiting, like in the story of the prodigal son, with the simple answer. But I'm his child. That is my identity. And at first glance, it may not seem like this passage is about identity, but the type of person that James is describing is someone who has placed their identity in their own will, in their own plans, in their own success, and in their own results. They have a plan, they expect results from it, and that is where they've placed their confidence, not in the will of God. I'm so glad that God has brought Mariah and I into the season that we're in. If you had told me a little over a year ago that we would have ended up at this church, I would have been like, what's restoration? Why do they mean a coffee shop? <laughs> what, what, what is this? But see, because my identity wasn't in what I did or where I was doing it, God worked out the details and brought us here. But my identity is not in the season. Now, I hope this season lasts for a very long time because I love it. Amen. But, <laughs> and I know Blake does too, but <laughs> I know that I could have an injury that prevents me from being able to sing or play guitar that any number of different things could happen and the plan could change. As far as my campus ministry that I'm doing, God forbid another pandemic comes and I have even less access to the public schools than I do now. And I'm not able to do that work the same way as I am now. But it's okay because my identity is not in the season. It's not in the work. It's in the fact that I'm a child of God. And I know no matter what happens... I'll be able to glorify God, have relationship with him, and invite others into that relationship. So regardless of the season or the context, I'm going to do all three of those things with all of my heart. 
Now, don't misunderstand me. Again, I'm not saying that God doesn't care about the details. Rather, I'm saying he cares about them so much that you don't have to stress over them. Trust him. Do your part. Glorify him. Be intimate with him. Invite others into that process. Do your part, but trust him with the details. So does God have an amazing plan for your life? Absolutely. Does he owe you all the details? Absolutely not. He gives us what we need in the time that we need it. So put your relationship with him and, and the desire to grow into the image of his son. Put that first. In James 4, 16 and 17, it says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. There's a theological truth in verse 17 about sins of of omission and commission, sins that we do intentionally and willfully. We know something's wrong and we do it anyhow, and the sin of God telling us to do something and us neglecting to do it. But at face value, it almost seems separate from what James is saying up to this point. One interpretation is simply that he's saying that the people he's writing to know it is a sin to be prideful. And they must not do it. Another is he's bringing up these sins of neglecting to do things that God has told us to do because he's, he's emphasizing, honoring, and revering the will of God. See, oftentimes we get so caught up in our own plan and our own world that we're not doing the simple things that God's put right in front of us to do. So not only does... James emphasized that our faith should be in God's providence. In the following verses, he's going to emphasize where our faith should not be. James 5, 1 through 6 says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Very encouraging text this morning. In typical James fashion, he's very blunt. He's very forward with those that he's writing to. See, in the previous verses, he's described this savvy businessman, and we see him call out those whose trust is in their own accomplishments and plans rather than God's will. And in these verses, he presses further into the issue of wealth, describing people who have acquired their wealth by corrupt means. Never does he say that it is a sin to have wealth, Bible tells us it is the love of money that is the root of all evil. We receive a warning here that if our love, our hope, our confidence, our trust is placed 
in material wealth. We may end up like these men who care more about acquiring wealth than they do about justice. Willing to go to any length to get what they want. Cheating out their workers, stealing from them, lying to them, even murder. From the Old Testament, God's law shows that he cares for the poor. He cares for the oppressed. He cares for those in need. And so also must we. If our confidence is placed in our material wealth and what we are capable of doing to acquire that, we miss out on the need of those around us. Let us not ever become so focused on our own needs, desires, and agendas that we miss the opportunity to serve Christ by serving those in need. Starting in verse 7, James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider blessed those who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. In verse 7, we see this parallel between the savvy businessman we saw at the beginning and the farmer. We see a parallel between the patience of an honest farmer and the indulgence of the rich. The businessman, as we saw in the beginning of this text, forces his results into being by the illusion of his self-sufficient brilliance and expert planning. He moves quick, but the farmer waits patiently, accomplishing different tasks in different seasons, trusting God to work his providence. Authentic fruit is yielded over time. James reminds us to take the example of the prophets who patiently awaited the coming of the Messiah. Sharing a message that they would not see come to pass in their time. Or the story of Job. And how in his suffering and in his questions towards God, he still never failed to acknowledge God's providence. A businessman's success is at face value, completely based on his own will and determination. While the farmer's success does depend on his hard work, planning, determination. Ultimately, the results are up to God's providence. To bring the sun and the rain at the right time and in the right amounts. See... Waiting on God's will, on God's direction, is not an excuse for laziness. The farmer works very hard, but he knows that the end results are ultimately in the hands of God. And he's patient. 
There are many examples in Scripture of times where people brought matters into their own hands. I think of Abraham and Sarah waiting on a child from the Lord, and Sarah says, have a child with this servant. They're not patient on what God had promised, and so they take matters into their own hands, and there's, res and there's negative results for that. There's consequences for that. James calls us to patience. Finally, in verse 12, it says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Our trust and our confidence ought to be in God's will rather than our own plans. But where does that leave us? Can we plan for tomorrow? Well, in the same way that waiting for calling is not an excuse for laziness, tr trust in God's providence is not an excuse for a lack of commitment. God calls us to be people of integrity, consistent in all that we do. Proverbs tells us that a man will make his plans, but the Lord directs his step. So, so plan for the future. There's wisdom in that. But hold everything with an open hand, allowing God to guide you and work out the details as you go. Make your plans prayerfully, letting God's word guide your decisions. Don't throw your identity in with these plans. Don't put your confidence in your plans. By all means, don't swear by your plans. But be consistent. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. When you say yes, follow through. Recognize that you can say no. but be obedient to God in all of it. James calls for a truthfulness so consistent that it does not require an oath. Swearing by this name or that name, throwing everything we are into what we say, he says, no, just be truthful. You don't have to be dramatic about it. Just be consistent. Be consistent, be wise, and do your part. But at the end of the day, may your confidence rest in God's providence and God's providence alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your providence. We thank you for the fact that you do care about the details. And I just pray, Father, that as we look towards the future, that we would trust you and focus on what you've given us to do right now, to be faithful and obedient. I pray that you would help us to make our decisions prayerfully, wisely, and to follow your guidance as we go. We ask that you would bless the rest of the time here this morning, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.